If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now, Lord Jesus, we pause this morning and we think of the words that you gave us, that the servant is not greater than his master, that if they persecuted you, they'll persecute us. We think, our Father, of the promise the Apostle Paul gave us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You warned us, Spirit of God, woe to those who speak good things about you only, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. And so we know, our Father, if we stand for Christ in the midst of a godless generation, there'll be opposition, sometimes verbal, sometimes just people leaving us out, sometimes physical. We want to lift up our brothers and sisters in northern India and Manipur. Thank you for those who serve and represent this church body there. We pray, our God, for those believers, several hundred churches that have been burned to the ground, schools destroyed, hospitals ruined by those who are opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with those brothers and sisters. Thank you that often in the midst of persecution, the gospel will spread. May your sovereign purposes be accomplished. Now we humbly bow before you this morning as we open the inspired infallible word that you've given us. May our hearts be pliable and open to its message. May you speak through me. May you speak to me. Spirit of God, I pray you'd fill me and anoint me, that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Take God's word, would you, and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. If you're new to the Bible, if you will just find the Revelation, the last book, and scan backwards to the left, you'll soon hit Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. We've been in a series, we just finished, God's prophetic schedule. And before we begin our next verse-by-verse exposition of a book, which we typically do, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, there's a number of messages that uh, God's put on my heart, some questions you've asked me, uh, some that you've written me about, most of which I've just felt a burden for. And this morning, I want to speak on the subject of dangerous affairs. Now, sadly, our nation is in a crisis point. The fabric of any nation is the home, and when the home comes unraveled, the nation comes undone. And one of the reasons we are coming undone as a nation is because we've suppressed the truth that God has revealed about himself, and we've given ourselves over to moral impurity. And it's walked right in the front door of the church. And of course, please understand when I use the word church, there's the true church, there's the false church. There's the professing church, there's the possessing church, there's the church that's alive, there's the church that is dead, there's the church that believes in the inerrant, infallible word of God, and then there are those churches that do not. But our culture now has labeled deviant sexual behavior outside of marriage as an alternative lifestyle, or sometimes as 
a welcome act between consenting adults or a rite of passage where people will say, well, boys will be boys. And we have even adopted the word safe as an adjective to sex. Safe sex, there's no such thing as safe sex because there's no such thing as safe sin. And if you know Bible history and if you know world history, then you know that any nation that gives itself over to heterosexual permissiveness soon adopts homosexual perversion, and the nation has not been able to survive. Now, I could give you all the statistical evidences and the studies that have been done, but let me just read one quote as to the abnormality of homosexuality. Listen to these words. Even in non-religious terms, homosexuality represents a misuse of the sexual faculty. Homosexuality is a pathetic little second-rate substitute for reality, a pitiable flight from life. And as such, homosexuality deserves fairness, compassion, understanding, and when possible, treatment. But it deserves no encouragement, no glamorization, no rationalization, no fake status as a minority, no pretense that it is anything but a pernicious sickness. Do you know where those words came from? They came from the pen of a respected expert on the cover edition entitled Homosexuality in America in 1966 in Time Magazine. Can you imagine today Time Magazine penning such words? There would be demonstrations at their New York headquarters. As recently as 1972, the American Psychiatric Association termed, quote, homosexuality as a disorder deserving psychiatric treatment. Yet today, there are people who don't speak out against homosexuality, and if they do, they are considered the individuals who need treatment. And again, if you study the history of a nation, though the subject this morning is not homosexuality, But what is true from Holy Scripture is that heterosexual permissiveness always creates an atmosphere for homosexual perversion. That's taught in Romans chapter 1. And so moral perversion is being accepted as normal across our nation. And when the church sends a mixed message as to what is right and to what is wrong, it gives the permission, it gives the culture permission to live immorally. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When the church loses its saltiness, our ability to preserve righteousness quickly dissipates. Now, I hope you've found Hebrews chapter 13 by now. Many of you are new to the Bible, and let me just say the book of Hebrews is one of the more challenging meteor books in all of the Bible. Let me uh, set the context. Let me give you the broad context, and then we'll zero in on the immediate context. Here's a chart God gave me some 30 years ago, an outline of the book, chapters 1 through 4, the focus is on the worth of Christ. And if you've studied Hebrews, this book will help you to defend the deity of our Lord and Savior along with His humanity. When you come to chapters 5 through 10, the focus is on the work of Christ. And again, this letter will help you to understand the completeness of your salvation and the incredible implications that it has for walking with God. And then when you come to chapters 11 through 13, the focus is on the walk of the Christian. 
Or to say it differently, chapters 1 through 10 deal with instruction. Chapters 11 through 13 deal with exhortation. In the first 10 chapters, he teaches us what it is we are to believe. And in the last chapters, how it is that we are to behave. Because doctrine always leads to duty. Your belief should always influence your behavior. Now, to zoom in here on the 13th chapter, here again, we're in the applicational section. The first uh, part of the chapter almost reads like the book of Proverbs. In fact, here in the opening verses, they read like short little pithy statements. And he's really teaching the believer how to put these great doctrines of the faith, the 11th, 12th, and 13th chapters, how to put them into shoe leather. Now, we're going to read and focus really just on one verse this morning, the fourth verse, but to give us a running start into the context, I want to begin reading in verse 1. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1, follow along, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Again, history demonstrates that any culture that will treat sex lightly will treat their fellow human beings lightly. And so we have the abortion holocaust. We have the abuse of little children and sex trafficking. We have the abuse of the elderly in nations around the world. If you get too sick, especially in Western Europe, no treatment. Just put them down like a bad dog. Euthanasia has become a way of life in a number of nations. And this is all the outgrowth of immorality and self-centeredness and selfishness. And much of the immorality in this culture comes from six decades of evolution. Have you ever thought about the implications of evolution? Think about it. If there's no God who created you, and that was the basic premise in which Darwinian uh, evolutionary thought began. His godless gang had to come up with a reason. If there is no God, then how do you explain the universe? So if there is no God who created you, then you're really not accountable to him. And so you become your own master. You become your own maker. You become, in essence, your own God. And whenever men deny God, they deify man. This is why I told you I have such trouble with a so-called apologist like Tim Keller. I know people say that they were helped by him, and I spoke about him on a national radio program I was on earlier in the week. And, you know, you always get feedback and people who kick back. But listen, he denied the historicity of the first three chapters of Genesis. He adopted in his book, A Reason for God, theistic evolution as a viable alternative. God did not use evolution to create the world. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. And if you don't believe that, then you're denying what Moses said in Exodus 20, where he gives divine commentary on the days of creation. In six days, he said, God created the heavens and the earth, and the seventh he rested. Therefore, you work six days, and the seventh day is to be a Sabbath. That's what Moses believed. That's what I believed. That's what Jesus taught. But when you say, well, listen, one through three of Genesis can't be trusted. It's filled with errors and mistakes, unless it's poetry. 
And so he didn't want to say the Bible was full of mistakes. He just said it was poetry. It's not poetry. It's history. And so the mess that the mainline denominations are in, and now the mainline denomination, not just the mainline, but some so-called evangelical churches. So you have T.D. Jakes, you have Andy Stanley at North Point Church saying that homosexuality, well, it can be permitted in the church. They have more faith, he argues, than many heterosexual saints. And it becomes an issue of authority. If you undermine the creation account, if you can't believe biblical history, then you cannot believe biblical morality. And so the issue goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Satan said, did God say? He questioned the authority of God's word. And again, when there are no moral absolutes of right and wrong, then you will always end up destroying the home and you will bring anarchy on the culture. We have a lawlessness problem that is growing across America and it is growing at a ferocious rate. And much of it is rooted to the fact that we are suppressing the truth that we know about God. And part of that is expressed in immorality, in heterosexual immorality. Paul's argument in Romans 1 is God has revealed himself to all men. So biblically speaking, there's no such thing as an atheist. I've told you that many times. A man, a woman may say he's an atheist or an agnostic. He's a liar. He's not. He knows in his heart of hearts There's a God. He knows it through the creation around, and he knows it from conscience within, and even God's care for the righteous and the unrighteous. And so the Bible spends one half of one verse defending the existence of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But when you suppress the truth of God, his eternal attributes, his divine power seen in the creation, then God gives people over to do their own thing. And so Paul describes his downward spiral in Romans 1 to heterosexual immorality, to homosexuality, and then to what he calls a depraved mind, an upside-down mind, literally, where you call good evil and evil good. And when you've lost your moral compass, you've lost your ability to blush. We live in a culture where there are no red faces any longer. And Jeremiah lived in such a day. He said, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not know how to even blush. And if we don't teach our children what the scripture reveals, then they are going to be caught up in the culture. They will become like the culture. So how does God use a teenager, a young boy, a girl, an adult, to make a difference in the kind of world that we live in? His method has always been the same. He takes a person who's willing to be distinctively different, a person who's willing to live a separated holy life for the Lord, and he allows their light to shine. And in some people's eyes, it will glare, but in other people's eyes, it will reveal their sin and show the Savior. So how do we become that kind of person? That's what the writer of the Hebrews is focusing on in this 13th chapter. And we're going to focus on one aspect of his counsel this morning. It's the subject, again, of dangerous affairs. And so there are three principles concerning this subject of dangerous affairs that I want you not to miss so that we can become the kind of person God's called us to. First, marriage is to be held in honor. That's the first principle. Marriage is to be held in honor. 
Notice how verse 4 begins. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, the command was in response to different groups of people who had a low view of marriage, and so it's important that we understand the biblical historical setting. As you go back into the first century, there are two groups of people, especially amongst the Jewish people, but not exclusively, but especially amongst the Jewish people. Remember, this is the book of Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish born-again believers, Jews who are still Jews, but they were completed Jews. They'd embrace Yeshua as Lord. And so he taught first that marriage was dishonored by those who despised the institution. That was a prevalent way of thinking. So he wants marriage to be held in honor. Why? Because marriage was dishonored by those who despised the institution. There are Jewish people who taught, and you can read it in their literature in the first century, that being celibate was a holier state than being married. And as the church progressed, many so-called Christian leaders adopted that point of view. Most of you know Origen, who was a believer, but he castrated himself thinking that celibacy was a holier state than marriage. And again, it's a problem of misunderstanding the plain teaching of Scripture. In the Christian church, some took Paul's words out of context. But let me read a few verses to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you know 1 Corinthians 7, it begins with the words, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me. And so they wrote him a letter asking him all these questions, and beginning in 7.1, he begins to tick off the answers to those questions. So he says in verse 32, because one of their questions concerned marriage, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. It is true, as Paul will underscore in this chapter, that if you are single, you're able to give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. And I knew that as a single man. When I was a campus pastor, I would leave often at 7.30, 8 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes I wouldn't come home until 10.30, 11 at night. I met with people all day sharing the gospel, discipling new believers. And then God brought Audrey into my life and everything changed. And God blessed us with five beautiful children. And that kind of devotion needed to change. But that was a good change because that's how God intended it. And so Paul's words need to be read in their historical biblical context. He says in the same chapter, in the seventh verse, yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, Paul is saying it's a marvelous state to be in to be single if God's called you to be single. In fact, Paul never was married. He was single his entire life because God had gifted him that way. That's how he describes it in that chapter, as a gift from God. This is not a spiritual gift. Some people put it on a spiritual gifts inventory beyond the 20 that are listed in the New Testament. This is not so much something that God does through you as something that God does to you. And so the assumption in Scripture is that this is the exception to the norm, All the way back in the book of Genesis in the second chapter, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so contrary to those who say that celibacy is a preferred state, especially in church leadership, and so the Roman Catholic Church today, be it the Pope, the cardinals, the bishops, the priests, right down to the rank and file deacons, 
The Scripture assumes that a man will typically be married. Why? Because it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, it's not wrong to be single and in the ministry. The chief shepherd of the church was single his whole life. Paul was also a pastor and elder. All apostles are elders, not all elders are apostles. Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. But when he gives the qualifications for an elder for a pastor, Paul assumes most will be married. And the overseer, the elder then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. He assumes that you are a one-woman man. And then as he goes on to describe further the qualifications, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Then he adds parenthetically before he goes on with the qualifications, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so while celibacy is not a forbidden state, it's not the typical state. And again, when Paul says, when you're looking for a pastor, an elder, a bishop, three terms used interchangeably in the New Testament, not of different offices, but of the same office, he said, don't look at how many letters he has after his name, look at his family. Because if he can't make his Christianity work in his family, you shouldn't try to export it into the church. And I might add, beyond Roman Catholics who affirm celibacy, In the Protestant realm, there are those who forbid marriage and that they redefine marriage. And now the Catholic Church is beginning to waver on this as well. And so the Supreme Court of the United States and a number of state laws advocates that marriage can be between two men and between two women and all other kinds of possibilities. This is what the Scripture said would happen at the end of the age. Listen to these words in 1 Timothy chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's articular here. The faith meaning the body of truth, as Jude says, delivered once and for all by the apostles. That's where we live today. People are rejecting the Bible, the faith. It's called apostasy. Paying attention to what? To deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, if you are here for the prophecy series, we saw, at least in the New Testament, God distinguishes the term last days from latter times. We have been in the last days since Jesus was on the earth. That's why Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost, and they witnessed this marvelous miracle of 120 speaking all these different languages they had not learned before. And he said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. And so, because the Scripture teaches the imminent return of Christ, that He could come for the church at any moment, we have been in the last days. Whereas the term latter times is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to describe the time frame before the second coming, a distinctly different event from the rapture, where Jesus literally physically comes to the earth, where the prayer of the saints, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it be in heaven, and he rules for a thousand years. So I think we're in the last of the last days because we're seeing God set the way for the return of Christ from heaven. So he describes that men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and to doctrines of demons. Listen to verse 3. Men who forbid marriage, either by saying celibacy is a preferred state or by redefining it, as we're seeing happen in our day, and advocate abstaining from foods. By the way, that's the green movement. That's the World Economic Forum. They say by 2030, you won't eat meat. You'll eat bugs. 
Now, they might eat bugs. I'm not eating bugs. If I have to go out and kill a squirrel, I'm going to eat some meat, I promise you. You know, they, they go around in their hypocrisy, and they fly into Davos, Switzerland in their fancy jets, and then they tell you that you need to conserve fuel. Men who forbid marriage and abstain, advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So there's no such thing as gay marriage. Paul didn't face that. Abraham Lincoln once asked a little boy trying to make a point. He said, if a dog's tail is called a leg, how many legs does the dog have? The little boy said, well, he has five legs. He says, no, he doesn't. He has four legs. You can call a tail whatever you want, but the dog has four legs. And you can say there's such a thing as gay marriage, but in God's economy, there is no such thing. So in the first century, the writer of the Hebrews is addressing people who lived in a culture where certainly marriage was dishonored by those who despised the institution and they were advocating aestheticism. Secondly, be on your outline, marriage is dishonored by those who denigrate the institution, by those who denigrate the institution. Divorce was a prevalent problem in the Jewish community. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to the Bible, it's the very first book in the New Testament. And turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19. This is a very important passage of Scripture. Some Pharisees came to Jesus one day, and the parallel text is found in Mark 10. And he says, uh, we read in verse 3 of Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. And asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Understand, in the Jewish community, there are two rival schools of thought that generated this question. There was the school of Hillel, and there was the school of Shammai. In the rabbinical school of Hillel, they said you could divorce your wife for any reason you could think of. You don't like her cooking, you don't like her parents. You don't like her voice anymore. You could come up with just about anything you wanted. And they saw divorce as a gift from God to jettison your wife and to find a new one. In the school of Shammai, it was more conservative. They said, well, you can't divorce your wife for any reason at all, only for sexual immorality, some kind of sexual offense. And the debate raged over a verse that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. You might want to put that in the margin next to verse 3. Deuteronomy 24, 1, let me read it to you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from her house. So those who are in the school of Hillel, they put emphasis on the part of the verse, she finds no favor in his eyes, which could mean just about anything. Whereas the school of Shammai put emphasis on the verse, found some indecency in her, i.e. marital unfaithfulness. And so these Pharisees who were in one of these two groups come to Jesus and they're testing him. They're basically asking, Jesus, whose side are you on? Well, um, understand what it can't mean. In Deuteronomy 22, in verse 22, we learn that the penalty for adultery was death. So you can't divorce someone who's dead. In Deuteronomy 22, in the same chapter, the penalty for premarital sex was death. So again, there's no reason to divorce someone who's died. So what does this really refer to? 
Well, most take it, myself included, that this goes back to the prophet Ezra or the priest Ezra, the 10th chapter. Ezra wrote in the 10th chapter that the Jewish people were to put away their Gentile idol-worshiping wives. Why? Because the nation was being destroyed by idolatry. Not only was the nation being destroyed, the, 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 the line, the Jewishness of the nation by which the Messiah would come was being quickly diluted. But that was an exception. Again, Jesus will explain in the 19th chapter, this was all allowed because of the hardness of man's heart. Some things were allowed under the old covenant because the world and the church both have a different relationship to the Spirit of God than they did in the old covenant. No Old Testament saint was ever indwelt by the Spirit of God. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Even though John had a unique relationship, one of about 500 in the old covenant deal where he had a special relationship to the Holy Spirit, it wasn't as great as our relationship because John died before Pentecost. And so some things were allowed under the old covenant. Polygamy is not allowed today. God permitted it. David had five wives, and yet he's called a man of God. Today he'd be called an unbeliever. Because we live in a different realm. And so it was because of the hardness of heart. But as we'll see in just a moment, the Pharisees took this concession as a command. And they jumped on it and they highly prized it as a gift from God. And so they're saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And so Jesus responds to their question with a question. Notice how verse 4 begins, and he answered and said, have you not read, paraphrased, don't you guys read your Bibles? Don't you know what the Scripture says? Now, it's interesting to me that the Pharisees are preoccupied with grounds for divorce, and Jesus is concerned with the permanency of marriage. And so rather than first directly answer their question, he answers their question with a question. He answered them, verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis 1.27 to remind them of two unarguable facts. First, that it was God who created them. And so the Pharisees were created the leading rabbis when Jesus said, you should be consulting the one who came up with this whole thing we call marriage. Consult the owner's manual. Consult the scriptures. It was God who made them male and female. And if God made them male and female, and by the way, there are only two genders, two genders, and that gender is determined by your biology, not between your ears. We live in a crazy upside-down world because we live in a depraved, upside-down culture where God has given people over to a depraved way of thinking. God thought up marriage. He started the institution ever before he started government, ever before he started the church. He installed the plumbing as such because he knows how it should work. He created the male and female because so that they could be married. And so don't miss that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or some great theologian or no Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic to know that marriage is between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court of the United States says. It doesn't matter what state law says. We should be interested in what the Supreme Court of the universe says and what the Supreme Chief Justice of the universe says. God alone speaks with authority. And so we go back to his word. Remember, the church, as we studied a few weeks ago, is the church of the living God is the pillar in support of the truth. 
So lest this implication be missed, God made them male and female. Notice how verse 5 begins with that little word for. In other words, he's given us the reason why God made them male and female. For this reason, because he made them male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. No longer is Jesus quoting Genesis 1. He's now quoting Genesis 2. Let me read it from its original context. Moses writes, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which had been taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and Eve knew that God had instituted marriage. I mean, what does leaving your father and mother have anything to do with Adam and Eve? They had no father or mother. This is the origins for marriage. And there are three critical words here. Leave, cleave, become one. Uh, If you're using the newer edition of the New American Standard, it says leave, be joined. The 77 edition says leave, cleave, and become one. And really, most of the problems in marriage today are over these three words. In fact, the bulk of my premarital counseling concerns these words, leave, cleave, and become. And so when a couple gets married, they must first leave father and mother. That's what real men do. And so if a man can't demonstrate that he can leave his father and mother and support this woman all by himself without any help from, me, from him, from her, then I'm not going to marry him. And by the way, every pastor in this church teaches that. It's part of the same curriculum we all teach. In fact, the very first encounter we have with a young couple who want to be married is we deal with the permanency of marriage. That divorce is not even an option. You must leave your father and your mother. And that's really what we're trying to help our children to do, aren't we not? For them to leave. And some Christian parents hold on too tight. Listen, they turn 18, 19, and 20. There's a degree of independence that you should allow them to experience. You're trying to work yourself out of a job. And if you don't let them leave, they will become embittered towards you. They leave father and mother. And the second key word is they cleave or they're joined. And the Hebrew word in Genesis to cleave means to be stuck together like glue, to cling together or to unite. It's used of scales clinging to a fish. It's used of a tongue stuck to the roof of someone's mouth. And so in Malachi chapter 2, God describes divorce as a violent act. Listen to these words. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. But unfortunately, many couples enter into marriage with divorce as a possibility. It's not until death do us part. It's until divorce do us part. Now listen. I always warn young couples, we look, among other verses, 1 Corinthians 7, 28, if you get married, you will have trouble in this life. You say, that's that's true about marriage. Yes, it is. If you get married, you will have trouble in this life, but it's a good trouble because when God brings two selfish, self-centered people together, 
He wants to carry them to a level of sanctification maybe that they have never known before. And so I tell these young couples, you may reach a point in your first few months of marriage, your first year, and say, why did they ever get married? It was a whole lot easier being single. And so what do some do? They, they pull the ripcord of divorce, and they bail out. And you show me any couple who is willing to pull that ripcord, and I'm telling you, they're not going to make it. They have the false notion that people's marriages that last and work, that somehow those folks don't have problems. Everyone has some kind of trouble in this life. The difference is that of commitment and whether you're willing to fall to your knees and ask the living God for his help. And so you leave and you cleave. And the third word is you become one flesh. You become one. And when the scripture describes becoming one, most people think of it only in the physical realm. And that's certainly true, as 1 Corinthians 6 affirms. But the way Jesus uses the word is it's much bigger than that. It's a oneness, not just in the physical, but the soulish and in the spiritual realm for the true believer. And that's why he can immediately, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This oneness continues day by day, hour by hour. And so God makes us one on the uh, physical level, but he makes us one on the soulish level. You become friends. It's not good that a man be alone. There's a companionship factor. My best friend in this life is Jesus. My second best friend is my wife. My third best friend are my children. My fourth best friends are my grandchildren. And that's the way God made it to work. And so there is to be a oneness, a companionship, a friendship. And please understand the becoming one is never used in relationship to the parent-child relationship. Only to the husband-wife relationship. And sadly, a lot of couples, they, they think, well, if we have uh, children somehow, you know, that will keep our marriage together. No, a higher priority than your relationship to your children is to each other. And so these couples who build their home around the children, it's not unusual. 20, 25 years in the marriage, it dissolves. Why? Because they built their home around their marriage instead of prioritizing the things that God prioritizes. The two shall become one. And let me just say parenthetically, when you have children, don't say, well, we've started a family. You started your family at that marriage altar. The two shall become one. And by the way, the man doesn't take her last name. The woman takes his last name. And these Christian women who keep their maiden name, they're nothing more than Christian feminists, and they're in violation of portraying and giving testimony to the headship that God has entrusted to men in the church and in the home. And that's a sad day that we live in. No, you take his name because you recognize that he's your spiritual head, that he's your spiritual leader. And young ladies, that's what you should look for, among other things. A man who can lead you spiritually, not one that you have to drag around. And so there's a oneness physically. There's a oneness on a friendship level. And if God brings children, that's not when your family starts. It just grows. But ideally, there's a oneness spiritually. And when you have two born-again people, this is why a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. And of course, the question that they asked Paul in, 
And 1 Corinthians 7 is, well, what if you're married to an unbelieving husband, either by disobedience or you got saved first or by ignorance because you were so spiritually weak, you thought he was a believer, but he wasn't or vice versa? What do you do in those situations? They thought in light of Ezra 10, maybe we should jettison the person. No, you stick together. You stick together no matter what. And so God does not want us to be joined together with unbelievers, but if we are, it is now his permissive will and he can make the best out of it. And so two people ideally are brought together spiritually. You're never to marry an unbeliever. Don't tell me, well, it was God's will because I married this lost person trying to get him saved and four years later he gave his heart to Christ. Then you're disobedient for four years. And if God did it, it wasn't because of you, it was in spite of you. Do not marry an unbeliever, period. Make sure they have the genuine item. And when two people know and love Jesus and they can fall together on their knees and work through challenges and commitments and pray for their children and their grandchildren and their ministries, oh my, how different the world is. And so Jesus says to these Pharisees in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, man doesn't join you. I don't marry anyone. Now, I officiated a marriage, and I've officiated it hundreds. God marries those two people. What God has joined, no man is to separate, and it's the same word. You can render it in some English Bibles, let no man divorce. So God's arithmetic is different from ours. One plus one equals one. That's what he's affirming here. So what God has joined together, no man is to tear apart by divorce. But unfortunately, we're living in a day where marriage is not honored back here in Hebrews chapter 13. And sadly, many a man has targeted some weak woman, or some women have targeted some weak man. If the truth were known, some of the marriages of people listening to me, you are the other person. You targeted that person, and you blew apart a good marriage through sexual immorality. Now, I'm not here to deal with all the intricacies of marriage and divorce, but let me just say, if you did that, whatever marriage you are on, it's part of God's permissive will for your life, but it's important that if you miss God's best, you acknowledge that and you don't make excuses to your children and your friends. You say, I miss God's best. God's best was one man, one woman until death separates us. And so in our verse, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And in the first century, this would apply to those who exalted celibacy over marriage and to those who denigrated the marriage relationship as well by their view on divorce and even in our day by those who are redefining marriage. Third, or second here, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all honor marriage. God the Son honors marriage because he invented it. He thought it up. He established the institution. God the Son honors marriage by performing his very first miracle at a, at a wedding. And God the Spirit honors marriage by the simple fact that he compares the relationship that Christ has to his church. He inspires the Apostle Paul to unfold that new revelation. So marriage is to be held in honor. Secondly, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It is to be undefiled. Now, let me make two observations from our passage in this regards. First, keeping the marriage bed undefiled is a choice. It's a choice. Now, reading further into 
verse 4. It says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So some defile the marriage bed by porneia. It can be used in a broad sense. We get our word pornography from it of various kinds of sexual immorality. Or it can be used in a specific sense of premarital sex. That's what they accused Mary of in John chapter 8. They said to Jesus, we're not born of porneia, fornication. In other words, you're here, Jesus, because Mary had an illicit relationship during the betrothal period. So the marriage bed is not to be defiled by porneia, sexual immorality, fornication, premarital sex, or moikeia, extramarital sex, sex after marriage with someone to whom you are not married. Most of the time when I hear someone say, well, I don't love her anymore, or I don't love him anymore, 98% of the time I'll say, well, what's his name? What's her name? And 99% of the time I'm right. It used to be the number one cause for divorce was finances, no longer. The number one cause for divorce today is sexual infidelity. It's defiling the marriage bed. And so it's interesting here. He uses this word to describe the marriage bed. It is to be undefiled. It's a Greek word that literally means free from contamination. And whenever God says in Scripture, thou shalt not, one, it's to protect us, but secondly, it is to provide for us. And sin, while it has its, what Moses calls its passing pleasures, in the end, it brings heartache and destruction. Put out in the margin, if you would, next to verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Let me read that verse to you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. When you're saved, you are justified, you are declared righteous. The process of sanctification is making you in your experience righteous. In other words, you have a new position before God that's not earned or merited. It's gifted to you when you come by faith. It's an eternal position. It can never be broken. The one who believes has this moment eternal life because eternal life is not simply heaven. It's an unbroken friendship with God. The only thing that changes at death is the position of this friendship moves from earth earth into heaven. You can't lose something that's eternal. It's an oxymoron to say that you can lose eternal life. But that's justification. You have a new position. You are declared righteous. But God wants in our experience to flesh out that righteousness. That's called sanctification. And so he plainly says here, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from porneia, sexual immorality. Now, this was not true 40 years ago. But today, the prevalent message of the culture is immorality, everywhere you look. And so it's critical that, to use Peter's words, gird up your minds for action. Most immorality starts here, as we'll see this morning from Proverbs, whether it's flirtatious words or something that you are programming your mind with, guard your heart with all diligence, because from it flow the issues of life. And so Paul is saying, have nothing to do with sexual involvement with others if you are not married to them. Abstain. Now, again, today, to have such black and white standards, you're considered fanatical. Some people say, well, be discreet. 
but don't abstain. Take precautions, but don't abstain. Or if you're an employer or a supervisor or an educator, they might say, well, it would be unwise for you to have a relationship to someone who works underneath you, but they won't say abstain. God does not say be careful. He says abstain. And if you're not married to that person, you have zero business with being involved with them physically. We are living in a day what the scriptures call the latter times, and there are doctrines of demons everywhere that are being taught, and many a Christian has lost their ability to discern the sharp edge of truth because they are being more influenced by the messages around them than they are from the Word of God. And so, listen, just this week in Wisconsin, third-grade little girls, third-grade little girls, they went home and complained to their parents because uh, this boy, who now claimed to be a, a girl, was in the same restroom with them. And so there's a big fight in Wisconsin whether or not they should allow that in their government schools. In fact, in the same state last week as well, there were four high school girls who complained because of a trans woman, that is a man who becomes a woman. I know the terms are confusing and boggling. But some guy who says he's now a woman, he's showering in the same space as four women. And they had trouble with that. And so, you know, what are we going to do in this upside-down world? And again, we're living in a day of heterosexual permissiveness. And Romans 1 is clear that whenever there is heterosexual permissiveness, the short step from there is homosexual perversion. And listen, I don't care if you are an American Christian or an American pagan. Don't tell me you love America. And if you're born again, don't tell me you love Jesus and you are living immorally, don't tell me you love Jesus. You are contributing to the downfall of this nation. We are in a spiral downward, not upward. We're moving further and further away from God, and our government is affirming it as something that should be protected. And God is very clear. Listen, I know some people reason, well, you know, I, maybe I've been immoral as a heterosexual, but, but I have a problem with homosexual sex. You know, and I, I don't embrace that. And so that must make me more righteous. It doesn't make you more righteous. You just haven't moved to that point yet. Listen, there were people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Gentiles, pagans, one man in their church who had his father's wife, that is, he was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says even the pagans, even the Gentiles see that as disgusting. And he warns them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So don't think for a second, well, just because I'm opposed to this sin and I'm engaged in this sin, I'm a better person. America is falling apart, and the lawlessness that we are seeing in major cities is coming to Beaufort County. Because we as a nation have turned our back on the living God. And he's letting us go our own way. And when you follow the progression, heterosexual sensuality, homosexual immorality, then a depraved mind, and he gives this list of vices. And included in those vices are people who are inventors of evil. Transgender is this is nothing new. 
It's taught in the Torah where a man put on a woman's clothing. We've just gotten more sophisticated in our invention of evil where we're drugging little boys and castrating them and giving mastectomies to little girls and we would have arrested such people a decade ago and now we are affirming it is right. This is evil beyond evil and the church has no voice to address it when they've lost the sharp edge of their holiness through compromise. So secondly, keeping the marriage undefiled is a choice. Why do I say it's a choice? Because God commands it. If God can command it, then it's a choice. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. That's a command. And God will give you the power. God doesn't give you a command and doesn't give you the power to carry it out. You can't say, well, I just can't help myself. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me if I avail myself to his resources. So one, keeping the marriage bed undefiled is a choice. Secondly, keeping the marriage bed undefiled is honorable. It's honorable. Again, in verse four. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let me again read the parallel, a parallel passage that I read earlier. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his body, in sanctification and in honor. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. After he said, abstain from youthful, flee youthful lusts and abstain from wickedness, he then says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. God wants you to be prepared for every good work. Look, we're all in Scripture beloved of God. We're his beloved. The noun is used. The adjective is used. The verb is used in Greek. But while we're all beloved of God, we're not all approved of God. Why? Because of moral compromise. And God doesn't use a dirty vessel. He uses someone who is willing to separate his thinking. You say, well, I've dishonored the institution. I've failed miserably. Well, there's forgiveness in Christ. And God can say in 1 Samuel 2, for those who honor me, I will honor. But then he says, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So it's a choice. What choice will we make? So marriage is to be held in honor. It is to be undefiled. And third, and finally, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He could not have said it any more pointedly than he did. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, I just read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read verse 6 right after he tells us that we're to abstain from sexual immorality because God's will for our life is to be sanctified. Then he says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter or sister. It's generic there. No man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Paul is giving the identical warning that the writer of the Hebrews is giving. He says in Hebrews, 
the writer, it's not Paul, but he says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And here Paul says, God is the avenger in all these things. So how does God avenge? How does God punish? How does God judge such sin? Well, it depends on the group, and so it comes on two levels. First point A, God will judge believers who commit sexual sin. God will judge believers who commit sexual sin. Let me see if I can illustrate. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs. Again, if you find the Psalms, which is about dead center in your Bible, right after the Psalms is the Proverbs, and turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs has 31 chapters in it, one for every day of the month. And uh, it's a great thing. My wife, every morning after I often left for work, would teach the kids as part of their home education a chapter out of Proverbs. And so today is the 16th day, so you'd read Proverbs chapter 16. And it's a book that is filled with wisdom. Now, let me ask you a question as you're turning there. Was the book of Proverbs written to believers or to unbelievers? To believers. It has their fingerprints all over it. Now, with that in mind, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon says, my son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. There are families today that are falling apart because they lack wisdom, understanding, discretion, and knowledge. Verse 3, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. That metaphor is translated for us in the book of the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 11. He's not referring to a woman's kisses. He's referring to her words, as Solomon indicates. Her flirtatious words. And many a woman has seduced a man with her words. Now, he is writing to his son. He's giving his son counsel. If he was giving his daughter counsel, he would have given counsel along those lines, what the man's line might be. But understand, most immoral relationships don't start in the physical. They start with words, whether it's a text message or some little flirtatious note, but it starts with words. Solomon will write in chapter 20, bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. People say, well, how could anything that feels so good be so wrong? Your mouth will be filled with gravel. When he comes to the next chapter, chapter 6, he'll say, Can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? Speaking of sexual immorality. Can a man walk on hot coals and not have his feet scorched? Speaking of the same subject, absolutely not. There are consequences that come from this sin. Listen to these words in Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you're awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. He's saying, load up, load up on the word of God. You know, we see some pastors, some Christian leader fall, and we say, look how far he fell. No, look how low he was living. When I see a man who falls into sexual immorality, I typically see a man who has exchanged priorities for other things, exchanged good priorities, God's priorities. They're not spending time with God. They're not enmeshing their mind in the word of God. And so what do they enmesh their mind? On the internet? 
on social media. They log more time there than they ever do in the Bible. And sooner or later, the evil one will win out. He will break down your thought process. Back here in Proverbs 5, verse 4. But in the end, this woman, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. There's deadly power. Immorality, it fascinates. Then it assassinates. It thrills, but in the end, it kills Death, death to joy, death to being used by God, death to purity, death to your marriage vow, and often death to the home. Notice her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of Sheol. If you were here for the series on God's prophetic schedule, we studied Sheol. It just is a Hebrew word. In Greek, it's Hades, and in Hebrew, it's Sheol. And it just means the place of the grave. And there were two compartments. There was righteous Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. That was emptied out at the ascension. And heaven is still called paradise, the Father's house, the New Jerusalem. We studied a number of terms. But there is unrighteous Sheol where the lost man is. It's current day hell that someday will be thrown into the lake of fire. If you're using the King James, old or new, it doesn't translate the, the, the word, the noun Sheol. It interprets it, and it interprets it as hell but it's a correct interpretation. He's saying her steps will lead you to hell. That's where it ends in the end. Verse seven, now then my son, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Listen to God's wisdom because as Paul says, you'll become the slave of the one whom you will obey. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Oh, pastor, I have a good marriage. My wife and I were... This would never happen to us. I've quoted to you many times Oswald Chambers, who's been in heaven a long time. He said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Paul says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. If you think this could never happen to you, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. I thank God in 43 years of marriage, my wife and I have known no one else but each other. But I am one step away from falling, and so are you. Let him who thinks, I would rather die. I've told the Lord I would rather die than to be unfaithful to him and to be unfaithful to my wife. Take my life before it ever happens. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest you fall. Keep your way far away from her. Don't go near her house. Don't walk past her house. Don't go to her internet site. Don't text her. Don't talk to her. Don't flirt with her. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, and love with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So on the one hand, you run from it. But on the other hand, there's something positive you do. There are believers listening to me today who could be here, but they're too lazy. Or they're out entertaining themselves on the Lord's Day. They're out on the lake. They're out on the ocean. They're at the beach. They're on the golf course. Oh, I'm going to take a Sunday off. This is the Lord's Day. And you gather, especially as you see the day drawing near, with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Not just any church, but a church that is faithful to the Word of God. 
Look at verses 9 and 10. Lest you give your vigor to others in your years to the cruel one. Lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien. The price of infidelity is huge. All that you worked for, your strength, your vigor, potentially can go to a stranger. When I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, I worked with CEOs of major corporations, and I think of one man in particular, prominent businessman, multimillionaire, many times over. But he began to work with a woman in his company who flirted with him, and before you know it, he was unfaithful, he lost his wife. He lost most of what he had earned. Before long, someone else, his children were calling someone else daddy. Listen, this will, this will ruin you. It will bring disease to your body. Look at verse 11. And you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Listen, this culture is littered with people with sexually transmitted disease. And some diseases there are no cure for right now. The antibiotics no longer work. God designed marriage to be a closed system. And when you keep it that way, there's no problems. I know our government is spending millions of dollars on trying to deal with the problem. But I have a cure, and the cure is one man, one woman, until death separates you. It's a closed system. And if it's closed, disease doesn't enter into it. When I counseled my future son-in-law, my counsel was real simple. Same counsel I gave my sons. You can hold hands when you're engaged. You can give your first kiss at the marriage altar. See, you don't know you're going to marry that person. You think you're going to marry them. You're even engaged, and the engagement breaks off. God wants to keep a locked system because it works. Look at verse 12. And you say, how I have hated instruction in my heart spurned reproof. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. Why didn't I listen to my pastor? Why didn't I listen to my parents? Why didn't I listen to the word of God? Immorality, it always promises you something. But in the end, it will disappoint you. Why was I so stupid? Verse 14. I was almost in utter ruin. In the midst of the assembly and the congregation, the Living Bible renders it, for now I must face public disgrace. That's what it does. It disgraces you. It will disgrace you with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers. You can hide it for just so long, but almost always it comes out. But even if it never comes out, God knows. So the advice, drink water, from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? You can see these metaphorical pictures. Let them be yours alone and not the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Don't get the idea that those of us who follow God's law are somehow missing out. Men can laugh at what I'm preaching. They can break God's law, but sooner or later they'll be broken by them. God is not trying to keep sex from you. He's trying to keep sex for you. He's trying to protect it, and he's building these high walls for his people 
so that the most precious gift that God designed for a husband and wife can be kept. For why, verse 20, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held in the cords of his sin, and he will die of instruction for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. So this sin has a built-in judgment. And it will bring you to places you thought you never would end. But secondly, God will not only judge believers who commit sexual sin. Finally, God will judge unbelievers who commit sexual sin. Stay with me. I'm just about done. I know this is a long sermon, but you can stay at a ball game for two hours and you can't listen to a sermon. Please. You've come to the wrong church if it bothers you. I've told you before, and I'm going to emphasize it again, God deals with a saved person on one level and a lost person on an entirely different level. He deals with his people on a cash basis. He deals with the lost people on a credit basis. You, if you're a believer, he'll deal with you in the present. In the prior chapter, in the 12th chapter, quoting Proverbs, he reminds us that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. In other words, if you truly know the Lord Jesus, you will come under divine discipline. God doesn't discipline the devil's children. You say, there's the devil's children? Yes, there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And once you've reached that point of accountability in your life, known only to God for the individual, you're in one of those kingdoms. And so Jesus could say to the unbelievers in his day, you are of your father, the devil. And so with his people, he deals with them with discipline in the present. And so Paul can speak in 1 Corinthians 11 of those who are sick, those who are asleep, those who even went home early. But listen, don't confuse the consequences of your sin with God's discipline. Jeremiah will say, your own wickedness shall correct you. So some people, they're just, they're just breaking the laws of God, and it's the law of sowing and reaping. But God, with his own, he steps in. But with the unbeliever, he deals with them on a credit basis. It's still out there in the future. And a lot of people think, I'm getting away with it. There's no consequence. Listen to what God said, first, as related to believers. First John 4, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. There is no fear in love. And the word fear, there's three Greek words in the New Testament used in different ways. This is not like, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a way in which we fear God. But here he's speaking about fear in terms of God's wrath because of a substitute who propitiated the Father. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That's why God can deal with you on a cash basis because God was propitiated in Christ. He can't punish you for a second time for the sin that Christ took the punishment for. So he deals with you on an entirely different basis. But with the unbeliever, whose sin has never been paid for because they rejected the payment that God had for them in Christ, he gives this warning, for instance, in Ephesians, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because people are deceived all the time. 
And so we have these preachers like Andy Stanley in Atlanta and T.D. Jakes who are now affirming homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. Let no one ever deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, this kind of immorality, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so just as in our text, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. If you have a problem with that, don't come up to me after the service and argue with me. Your argument is with the living God and what he has said in his word. You say, Pastor, I've blown it. Can God forgive me? Of course he can. And if you've blown it in the, marriage of a, in the context of a marriage, I hope your spouse will forgive you. And she should forgive you. But that doesn't mean that you don't earn her trust or his trust back. It takes time to rebuild trust. And sometimes it takes a long time. And there are some decisions that you need to make that led up to that immorality. And some hard decisions sometimes you need to make. I told one guy, go to a flip phone. Here you are, a porn master on your little handheld computer. Go to a flip phone. Oh, I need, I need, I need, you know, a real Apple phone. No, you don't. How much do you value your marriage? You've got decisions to make. God can forgive you. This can be the first day of the rest of your life. And if you've never received Christ, you're under God's judgment. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God is laying upon him. You're under God's wrath. And if you die under that wrath, you will enter into his eternal wrath. Today is the day of salvation. Come by faith. Put your trust and the one who didn't die for some of your sin, most of your sin, but all of it. Put your faith where God puts your sin on Christ. But you can't hold on to your sin and agree with your sin and say it's fine. Because then you don't need forgiveness. You must change your mind. Metanao. You must repent and believe in Christ. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You're here today. And you are a believer. But there's been infidelity in your marriage. You need to go to the living God and ask for his forgiveness, his cleansing. Not make excuses, but receive his cleansing through the blood of Christ. And some of you need to be willing to forgive a spouse who has genuinely repented. And if you're unwilling to forgive, maybe you've never been saved. Because a mark of genuine conversion is a willingness to forgive others because God has forgiven you. You say, Pastor, I'm not even sure I'm going to heaven. Well, the gift of God is eternal life. You can't earn this gift. You must humbly receive it. You must call upon Jesus, and God can instantly and eternally save you because Jesus made an eternal payment on the cross for you. Would you call upon the resurrected Lord and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, you told us that if we live a separated life, especially in this age, at the end of the age, that men will persecute us. 
But thank you that when we let our light shine, some will be illuminated to the truth of the gospel. Some will resist us and persecute us. But help us to be faithful until you take us by death or by rapture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.